Welcome to Everything Imaginable, a podcast for curious minds from KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochileo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochilillo. And before we get started, I would like to thank my contributors to the show. Executive producer, Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger. Senior editor, Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me. Binaural production engineer, Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great. And monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, just go to everythingimaginable2020.com and you'll find a whole bunch of information there and different ways to contribute to the show. And now, without any further ado, we have Patty Wigington on a show. She has written a book called Badass Ancestors. Ancestors. <laughs> and uh, she's also uh, covered, written a few other books on witchcraft, which, strange enough, I have not actually covered on this show. <laughs> Thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm, I can't believe I am your first witchcraft guest, so this is going to be awesome. No holds barred. Anything you want to talk about is fair game. Also, huge thank you for pronouncing my last name correctly because a lot of times people mess it up. So thanks for that, too. You no, know, people mess up my last name, too, all the time. It happens. It happens. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, you do look a little bit like Stevie Nicks. You know, I I have not gotten that one before, but I think it's just, I think it's the hair. I've got big hair, and so that's just, you know, if I was to take it down, it, it would need its own zip code. So sometimes that'll <laughs> that'll get people's attention. Plus, but it's uh, bright red right now, so people can see me from space. <laughs> it's awesome. I think, too, for like most people my age, my first introduction to anything witchy was Stevie Nicks. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. For those of us who are Gen X, like... Stevie Nicks was, she was the bomb. It was like, oh, yeah, I don't know what she's got going on, but it's spooky and I like it. <laughs> what got you into it? What got me into it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of interesting. So I, I never actually started out practicing. I never said to myself, I think I'm going to start practicing witchcraft when I grow up. Um, it didn't really happen that way. It, it unfolded a little more organically. So I was, I was not raised Christian. I was raised agnostic. My parents are, are wonderful people who are passionate about education and experience. And they really encouraged my brother and I to sort of find our own path, um, which is something they, they were, it was like free range. And so I grew up reading a lot of mythology and folklore from around other cultures of the world and stuff. Um, you know, it wasn't uncommon to find me curled up in a corner reading, you know, ancient Greek myths or what have you. And then, so, so I sort of fell into, I fell into the concept of magic through folklore and fiction. And then as I reached my teenage years, once I moved out on my own, um, I actually was introduced through a mutual friend to a woman who was a practicing Wiccan. And I, I had never met anyone who actually practiced witchcraft before. I think I was about 18 at the time. 
And um, I, I remember the first night I met her, we sat there and we talked like really late into the night. And by the time I left to go home, she handed me uh, a copy of Ray Buckland's Big Blue Book of Witchcraft, the complete book of witchcraft, which is the starter pack for pretty much anybody of our generation. Um, she handed it to me and she said, I want you to have this because I think you'd find it interesting. Um, so I read it and I did. And all of a sudden, everything that I had been reading about throughout my formative years and all the things that I, I believed that nobody else did turned out there was like a whole bunch of other people who thought the way I did. Um, and so from there, it just sort of fell into more than just reading, but the actual practice for me. And that was how I got started. It was completely by accident. Right. You know, I think that happens with a lot of people. You know, we, we get interested in a bunch of different things and then we stumble upon something that kind of takes all those things, puts them together into something that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I hear that a lot. You know, I've been practicing for over 30 years now, and I, I meet people all the time, you know, when we're not in pandemic years. I'm usually at festivals and conferences, and I, I inevitably end up talking to people who say, I didn't know what I was looking for, but when I found it, I felt like I had come home. And and that is absolutely the truth of it. You know you know that you've found the path that's for you when you land on it. And I think that's, that's universal, whether you're talking about, you know, a magical or witchcraft based belief system or something completely different. Um, when it comes to spirituality, I think, I think that's what we're all looking for is something that makes us feel like we're home. Right. Um, can you explain to my listeners what witchcraft is and what it isn't? Oh boy. That's, that's like a two hour conversation right there. <laughs> we'll do the Reader's Digest condensed version. Um, so first of all, I have to preface this by saying when I talk about witchcraft, I'm talking about my particular practice. And there are so many different ways of practicing it that what works for me and what I do may be completely different than what other practitioners do. Um, so that disclaimer aside, for most people who are practitioners of magic today, witchcraft is it's basically it's a way of changing things that we want to see changed by the use of our will and by the use of our intent and by focusing you know a lot of times you hear people say well if i just manifest it it's going to happen right. well there's a little more than just manifesting or wishful thinking you know there's there's some effort involved there's the projection of the will a lot of times there's uses of tools you know you'll sometimes people who are using, um, you know, I might use a candle to do a spell, or I might raise energy with a blade or that kind of thing, or I might mix my herbs in a cauldron, that kind of thing. So for most people, witchcraft is a practice. For some people, it is also a religion. Um, my magic and my spiritual work overlap, but are not exactly the same thing, if that makes sense. Um, but as far as what witchcraft isn't, there's a lot of things that it isn't. Um, and I think one of the biggest misconceptions I encounter with people is well, that some kind of spooky devil worship. And it's, it's not. Um, a lot of people who practice as modern witches or pagans or Wiccans or whatever they happen to label themselves as um, sometimes work with the gods and goddesses of our own belief system. Um, but it doesn't typically in involve, you know, evil or worshiping the devil. Um, the magic that I do is generally uh, stuff that I do to bring abundance into my life. It's to make my life better. It's to bring about healing. It's about to enhance my connection to the divine. Um, it's about protecting my home and family. 
Um, you know, because I, I don't know about you, but I'm a pretty busy person. Most adults are. <laughs> I don't have time to fiddle around with magic that doesn't benefit me. Um, so, you know, it's, it's for me, it's kind of like my, it's my self-improvement program, honestly. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, like I, it's what, what kind of spirit, like, do you even believe like a lot of pagans and Wiccans and, and, um, you know, other spiritual paths, they don't even really believe in a devil, uh, or evil. I mean, evil, maybe like as in a negative, you know, an opposing force in nature, possibly, or a -hmm. balancing force. But a lot of people I speak to on these alternative type of religions just look look at it as that. You know, like you have positive electricity and you have a negative electricity, negative current. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the devil, you know, Satan himself, who talks talks about Satan the most? It's not the witches or pagans. (laughs) It's the people who have a book that tell you all the bad things that Satan's going to do. Um, so, you know, if you look at Satan or the devil as sort of a, an archetype of evil, sure, there's evil in this world, whether you want to label it as the devil or, you know, some other thing, um, and, you know, ignoring it won't go away, but I mean, do I believe evil exists? Absolutely. Do I believe that that evil is a very specific individual being? Yeah, I've not experienced that, so I don't really... I mean, it, it doesn't fit into my belief system, but, you know, if you're somebody who grew up with that, you know, pounded into you every Sunday morning and every other Wednesday night, and I can, I can see how people would buy into it. And I think a lot of times, a lot of, I, I'm one of those pagans who did not grow up Christian, but many of the people in the pagan community did and came to paganism after spending lifetimes as, as Christians. Um, and I think a lot of times people bring that with them. They carry that, I don't want to say baggage, but they carry the experience of all the things they learned growing up. And it's hard to let go of that sometimes for people. Um, so sometimes I'll meet people in the witchcraft and pagan community who are like really adamant. They're like, oh, no, no, Satan's not. Our, no, we do not work with the devil. No, you know, OK, if you don't, you don't. That's cool. Neither do I. But I honestly don't really give it that much thought because it's just not it's just not in my spectrum. Right. And, and that's definitely true with a lot of people that I've talked to um, that are on these type of paths that it, it's, it's not really about that so much. Um, your most recent book is really interesting. It's called Badass Ancestors. It is. Um, and so can you give me an overview of what's in this book? Yeah. So Badass Ancestors is something I wanted to write for a really long time. Um So in addition to having been a practicing witch and pagan for over 30 years, I'm also obsessed with genealogy work. Okay, I started doing genealogy research into my family tree when I was about 15. And over the years, again, something that sort of unfolded organically, I started working with my ancestral guides as part of my spiritual practice. Um, I never really set out to do that. I never said, you know what, I'm totally going to call my ancestors to come visit me while I'm doing the magic didn't really happen like that. It just sort of unfolded on its own. And I started realizing that they were present in my life. Um, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to share with other people, um, because there's not a ton of books out there on ancestor work. There are a couple out there. There are a couple of really good ones. In fact, there was one that came out um, last spring, and I just completely blanked on the name of it. But it's also from Llewellyn, and it's, it's very good. Um, 
but I wanted to share with people how they can work with their ancestors for for personal power, you know, personal empowerment and, and spiritual growth and development. And I, I wanted people to understand that, you know, ancestor work is universal. It doesn't matter if you're a witch or a pagan or an atheist or a Christian or, you know, a Buddhist or what have you. Anyone can do ancestor work. It is not something that's limited to just people who practice this particular path or belief system because everybody has ancestors. We all got them. Now, you might not know who they are, but they know who you are, and everybody's got them. And I truly believe that our ancestors want us to be successful. They want to see us prosper. They want to see us flourish. And I wanted to share that with people. So when I got a chance to write that um, and put it into, a, you know, a, sort of a how-to manual, a field guide to working with your dead kinfolk, um, I was really excited to get the opportunity to do it. Right. One of the things that's interesting about ancestor um, work is that it is probably one of the earliest forms of magic also. Um, and it's found oh, in yeah. all different cultures. You know, it's found in Native American culture. It's found mm -hmm. in Hinduism. It's found in Buddhism. It's found in Taoism. Um, the only people that really don't seem to have any type of ancestor worship are Europeans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, if you look around the world, I mean, you know, Everybody does ancestor work except for those of us who sort of stop doing it. And that, that is absolutely true. Um, you know, if you, and even parts of Europe, you still see evidence of it mm -hmm. um, if you go back far enough. But, you know, if you look at Africa, Africa is the cradle of civilization. It's where we all sprang from. And there's, you know, there's a rich, longstanding tradition of honoring and venerating those who came before. Um, same in Asia, our native people here in the United States and First Nations folks up in, up in Canada. I mean, it's a really rich tradition. Um, and then European people came along, sort of started on with the whole colonizing thing. And as, you know, and this is not to slam Christianity, but as Christianity spread, ancestor work sort of got, it sort of got pushed downward because, you know, celebrating or honoring anything that wasn't, you know, one of, one of the big three was sort of frowned upon. So by the time, you know, my people and those of many other folks got to the United States, you know, whether it was a hundred years ago or 200 or 300 years ago, we had kind of stopped doing that. Nobody was paying attention to their ancestors, but they're still there. You know, they, they were still hanging out. And I think, I think there's been, I think there's been a resurgence in interest in ancestor work over the past few years, as a lot of people are trying to revisit the, um, the culturally relevant practices of, of their own families. Um, so it's really exciting to see people getting interested in it. But yeah, you're right. It, you know, if you if you look at European cultures, there's not a whole lot of ancestor work going on over the last couple thousand years. Right. Um, so how do we find out who our ancestors were and what attributes they had for uh, that will benefit us now? That is the multi-million dollar question: is how do I get started? Um, you know, and. It, Finding your ancestors, one of the things I wanted to do, to do in the book is I understand that not everybody has not everybody has been doing genealogy research since they were 15. I mean, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, it's something I've done and it's something I work on several times a week because it's that important to me. But I also recognize that for a lot of people, they're like, I do not know how to get started. Um, so the first section of the book is kind of a genealogy 101. Like, how do, how do you figure out who your people were? Um, 
And the first thing I always tell people, whether, you know, whether it's in the book or whether I'm doing, you know, a class on how to, how to do this kind of thing, the first thing you do is you start with your living people, your living family members. You know, if you're fortunate enough to still have parents and grandparents or, you know, if you're lucky, great-grandparents still alive, talk to them. Find out what they remember because that's where you start building the foundation, the, the roots of the branches of your family tree. Um, you know, figure out, you know, what do you remember? What was your father's name? What was your great grandfather's name? You know, do you remember how old you were when that person died? What was it like at Sunday dinner in your house? Who all, who all came over? Was there aunts and uncles and cousins? That kind of thing. Um, so once you've got all the information you can get from the living folks, then you can take that information and use it to sort of work backwards and, you know, find your, your kin folk. Um, there's a lot of information that is available for free online. Um, there's a lot of information that is available for a price online. I always tell people, you know, if you want to get an ancestry subscription and, you know, you're, you're not sure if it's worth the money, don't pay for it until you know you have to pay for it because there's so much information out there that you can find without paying for it. Um, but, you know, finding things like death certificates and working backwards through marriage certificates and then finding a birth record, that kind of thing. Um, you can find information about your kinfolk in newspaper articles. I recently uh, discovered um, a newspaper article. I knew that one of my grandfather's grandfather's something four or five generations back had um, apparently, you know, gone missing. Like, and that was all the story we knew was he had gone missing. Well, that doesn't really tell you a lot. There's a lot of things that could happen if someone gone missing. Um, I was actually able to find the newspaper article um, from 1857 in Scotland where his gone missing was actually he got into an altercation with someone else while on a boat and he went overboard and they never found him. That was his gone missing. I had no idea. I didn't know that that was the story. And because that part had gotten lost over the generations before it got passed down to me, just that you know, he went missing. Um, he went missing in the water. Um, so you can learn things through newspaper articles. You can keep diving backwards. Obviously, you can take a DNA test. A lot of people are doing that anymore. You know, there's some folks who are like, you know, once you do that, they've got your DNA. Well, you know, they've, they've probably also got my fingerprints and a spit sample somewhere else, you know, for, for whatever reason. So if you do a DNA test, you know, you can figure out who you're related to genetically. It doesn't tell you how you're related to them. It's kind of an approximation. Like, oh, this person is probably your third cousin, but it doesn't tell you how. Um, but there are a lot of different ways to find your people. Um, and the further you go back, the harder it gets to find that information. Um, but sometimes you'll get lucky and someone else has already done the work. You mm -hmm. might be able to connect with someone who's already researched a family tree. Um, one thing I always caution people about, though, is if you are if you are getting information from someone else who has already constructed a family tree, be really cautious because your information is only as valid as the sources. I sometimes see people, especially on ancestry.com who are really floppy researchers. It's like, I, you know, and, and I can tell by looking at the data that it's wrong. Like I don't even, I don't even need to check. I can tell by looking at the data that it is absolutely 100% wrong, but someone didn't check their work. And now other people are taking that information. They're not seeing what I see. And they're like, Oh yeah, this is totally great. This is my family. It's like, it's really not because that's wrong. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to find it. But the key is start with what you know, mm -hmm. start with who's still here and work backwards. Interesting. 
it's funny, like on my dad's side of the family, um, it's not that hard for me to track back because they came here through Ellis Island, so I know when they came here. Oh, okay. I know who yeah. came, I know who left. Um, and they've been also even easy to find on Facebook. Now, my mom's side of the family, they're Pennsylvania Dutch. Okay. And, you know, other than the, their lineage, lineage in America that my mom had kept track of, my great-grandma and all them, there's nothing. Yeah, you know, I've discovered, so I had something similar happen. I, I had a branch of my family that was, we had been told that they were uh, German, but possibly from the part of Germany that was once Austria-Hungary. And I was able to find a ton of stuff on them from here in this country when they got here in the 1870s or whatever. Lots of information, tons of it. Prior to that, the trail went cold. Um, and it turned out that they were from a part of Germany that is actually now Poland, but for a while had also been something else. Like the political boundaries had shifted so much that now I'm looking for records for these people from Poland. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that you that you run into a lot now. You know, I'm I'm pretty well educated, but I do not read Polish. So when I'm looking <laughs> at this information, I'm like, I don't know. I I so so for me that's kind of a roadblock because you know I I can't read the documentation. Um, but I think you do find that a lot in certain populations, you know, amongst the Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, that's a very uh, sort of insular sort of population. So it's entirely possible that, you know, once those folks got to where they got, you know, prior to that, they may have just sort of kept themselves to themselves. And it might be hard to find exact information, depending on when they came over here. Um, it, you know, you might have to find somebody who came over around the same time and sort of trace it through like neighbor connections, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. If they came over as a group. Yeah. It, it is weird. Like it just sort of, um, there's just not a whole lot of information about where they came from or like what part of Germany. Mm -hmm. I did do the ancestry test though. And yeah. Um, you know, and, and I mean, I mean, the, the German is definitely there in the DNA. Oh yeah. Um, as far as being able to find any, even my living relatives from that side of family has just been, been nothing. But my my dad's side of family, the Italian side, they're mm -hmm. all over the world, and they're all on Facebook. Oh, that's cool. And I'm friends with them. All. I mean, I got tons of them, like in South America, Italy, United States, and they were a piece of that's cake cool. to find. That's awesome. Yeah, I have a few people where it's like. I'll look at them and, you know, I'll send a couple of emails. We'll work out like, okay, we're fourth cousins since our shared ancestor and we've got it figured out. And it's like, wow, this is really cool. I am Facebook friends with, with several of them, you know, and a couple of them, it turned out actually lived not too far from me, like probably within an hour's drive of me, which I thought was really weird. Um, then there's others on the other side of the world. Um, then I have other folks I've connected to with my DNA and we're just kind of like, we, we have no idea. We don't, we cannot figure out who the shared ancestor is. Um, the only one I know for sure is I keep, ancestry keeps telling me that I'm a match with my own daughter, which is great because it, it proves that she is mine. Even though sometimes I look at her and I question it, she's absolutely 100% mine. We're matched genetically. Um, but yeah, the rest of them, sometimes I'm like, I don't know how I'm connected to this person, but somehow we are. So it's, it's, it's like an ongoing jigsaw puzzle. You just never know when you're going to get to the edge pieces. And then turns out there aren't any. Hmm. 
So, so how do you use this knowledge in your magical practice? Yeah, so I have an altar to my ancestors set up in my home. Um, I, I make it very clear to them, not just my home, it is their home as well. And because of that, um, you know, and I, I work with them regularly, you know, I, I, I communicate with them. Um, but once you start connecting with your ancestors on a, on a spiritual level, you can, like I said, they want us to be successful. They want us to help us. They want to help us. They want us to be prosperous. Um, I have worked with them to do home protection rituals because this is not just my home, it's theirs as well. And they are very, very protective of the space and the people within it. Um, I've worked with them for prosperity magic. Um, the first time I, I did any kind of financial working with my ancestors, I actually felt really weird about it. Mm -hmm. um, I was raised in a family where we simply did not speak about money. Like to this day, I cannot tell you what my dad's annual income was. I have no idea how much money my parents have. I really don't know. I don't want to know. Like, I'm just like, it just makes me uncomfortable to think about it. Um, so a couple of years ago, someone told me, they were like, yeah, I worked with my ancestors, told them what I needed, and now I have a new house and a car. And I'm like, well, that's bully for you. That's cool. But I feel weird asking for that. Um, and then a couple of other people told me similar stories where they had done ancestor work. They had asked for financial abundance and it had worked out. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, this is, this is like, this would be like asking my grandmother for a, for a loan. Like I, I just, oh, it just made me cringe the idea of asking my family members for money. But I was like, you know what? I know they want me to be successful and happy. So I'm just going to ask, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to present it to them and just, just, let's just wait and see what happens. You know, if nothing, that's okay. No harm, no foul. Um, but if it works out, great. So I put together a ritual and I did this working, um, basically, you know, telling them, hey, you know, I honor you guys. I think you're great. Uh, I want you to be proud of me. Here's the thing that I'm thinking about doing. Could use a little bit of financial assistance with it, but, you know, that's, that's where I'm at. Um, and then, you know, did my thing, kind of forgot about it because I'm all about set it and forget it. Um, and then two weeks later, I actually... I got the biggest check I had ever seen in my life and showed up in the mail as payment for something I didn't realize I was getting. Um, and I was sold. I was like, okay, all right. Okay. This really does work for me. <laughs> so <laughs> even though I felt really uncomfortable about it, obviously uh, it, it did the trick. So you can work with them for financial benefits. Um, you can ask them for your wisdom. There are times when I'm just like, I'm trying to problem solve and I'm like, I, I give up. I, I, I don't know where to go next. What, what do I do now? Um, and I'll ask them. Um, and almost inevitably, I get an answer. Now, sometimes it is not the answer I was hoping for. Sometimes it is an answer I just downright do not like. But I always get one. Mm -hmm. So you can work with them in a variety of different methods. Sometimes I just, I just thank them. Sometimes I'm just kind of like, hey, guys, thanks, thanks for making my life be pretty great. That's awesome. Um, how do you know which ancestors to ask for which for what? And like, like I know, if, like even me, like like my dad's side of the family, honestly, they're a little bit crazy. <laughs> like, like crazy just runs. Yeah, in we all got those. It, it runs in the <laughs> gene pool, you know. So I'm like, yeah. I don't know if I want to mess with those ancestors. Yeah, 
that, you know, that's the tricky part because it's really easy to jump into it when you're like, oh my God, I found all these new ancestors. I'm going to put all of them on the altar and I'm going to work with every single one of them. I, I try not to do that because I've got some who are just downright bonkers too. And I have some that are downright dangerous. Like there are some people in my family tree, like I don't want them present. I don't want them around. Um, so when I'm doing a working, I typically, one of the things I, I believe is a crucial part of the ancestor altar is um, candles representing whichever ancestors you want to work. There's a theory in a lot of magical belief systems that um, spirits are attracted to movement and light. And a candle flame does both of those things. It's light and it kind of flops around. So, you know, it's, it's why we always have candles on the table during a seance, et cetera. So I always... Uh, set up a candle for the specific ancestor or an, or group of ancestors that I want to work with. Um, if I have photos or other items that represent those individuals, I'll make sure they are present when I'm doing the working. Um, so I work with different groups of family members for different things. There are some that I very specifically call on for protective magic because they're really good at that. Uh, there are others that I call on to work with for financial gain. Um, there's still others that I call on for wisdom. My my great grandmother, who you know passed when I was 11, she was she was a pistol, and she was a font of of great advice and information. Um, and she had a really interesting and exciting life. And so I know when I just when I'm just kind of like stuck and I'm in a pinch, I know she's the first person I call on, and she's she is more than happy to share her opinion, whether I want to hear it or not. Um, so there are specific ancestors I do work with for various things. And the, the key is to fr figure out what, what that group of people or that individual person are associated to you with, for you personally, you know, let's say you, um, you need to do working for, you know, financial abundance. Well, you've got that one ancestor who, you know, came over as an as an immigrant with just a pair of shoes and the clothes on his back and he built an empire through hard work and, and diligence and you know through helping others that's the person you'd want to talk to because that's the person who's who's been there and done that um or if you need advice as far as you know protection you need someone to protect your house well that one ancestor who you know survived not one, not two, but three uh, battles during the American Revolution. You know, that's, you're, that's, that's the guy. So it really just depends. The further you go back, the more you learn about your people, um, the more you'll be able to pinpoint who to work with and more importantly, who you don't want to work with. Mm -hmm. What type of signs do you receive to know that it is working or that you've reached the right ancestor? Yeah, that's a good question. One of the things that I encounter, and this this has been a challenge for me throughout my my entire three and a half decades as a practicing pagan. There are a lot of times I'm a very logic and reason based person. Like uh, you know, show me show me the evidence. Show me you know show me the results. Show me you know I want a double blind study on everything. I want to know why things are working. Um, the problem with magic and spiritual practice is that you don't get that. There's no scientific background. You don't know if it's working. And so there have been a lot of times in the past 30 odd years when I've stopped and I've thought to myself, you know, I don't know if this is working or maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe this is all wishful thinking. Maybe it's all in my head. 
So with ancestor work, that is certainly part of it. I mean, everybody has their own sort of personal gnosis, what they feel is real and what they question, whether it is or not. Um, And I think for me, the biggest realization for me that I knew I was doing it right and that I knew that I actually was contacting ancestors instead of just like, you know, is it really, is it just all in my head? was I realized that sometimes they say things or request things that I would not have thought of on my own. Um, One of the examples I use in the book is, so my dad's family is from Scotland. My dad was born in Scotland. His family been in Scotland for a really, really long time. And as everybody knows, the national dish of Scotland is the haggis. Now, we don't have to have a terribly long conversation about what a haggis is, but suffice it to say, it's not something I ever want to eat. I just, I just don't. I mean, you know, I've got a pretty adventurous palate, not eating haggis. But I realized that if one of my ancestors said to me, you know, make me an offering of a haggis, I'd stink up my house figuring out how to, how to, how to cook a haggis. I would. Um, Another good example is wine. So despite what a lot of people think about me, I'm actually not a huge wine drinker. I'm more of a whiskey girl. Um, But every year for uh, Christmas and various holidays, people always gift me with copious amounts of wine. Like I have a lot of wine, which is great if I'm entertaining. Um, This past year, it just sort of sat there gathering dust. Um, But a couple of years ago, I had an experience where I had this bottle of really expensive Spanish wine, like well, I mean, I say really expensive. It was like, 50, it's like 50 bucks a bottle. I don't know if that's expensive for wine or not, because I don't usually <laughs> buy it. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I do have a bottle of Witch's Brew that was six ninety nine at Walmart, because that's really good. But like, that's, that's my, that's my gauge for how much stuff costs. I don't really know. But it's this, it's this really fancy Spanish wine, like it's imported. Um, and I realized that the reason I had that bottle of wine is because one of my ancestors wanted it. And I was like, okay. And that turned into something that was a super effective working because I presented him with this offering of this Spanish wine. Um, to this day, I don't know what that wine tastes like. I didn't drink it. I, I made it, I used it as an offering. It sat there on the, the ancestor altar. And uh, then that was kind of it. But, you know, it was, it, here I have the Spanish wine. What am I going to do with it? Well, the message I'm getting is I need to offer it. And, and it worked. So again, you just things that I wouldn't ask myself for mm-hmm. things that I wouldn't suggest to myself. Um, you know, if my ancestors ever say, Hey, I'd really rather you made me a plate of chocolate chip cookies. That's probably my wishful thinking going on right there. <laughs> Cause I'd rather have that than a haggis. Yeah, I would too. Um, do they ever work through, I mean, do you ever ask them for a sign to make sure that you're doing the right thing? And do they ever work through synchronicities um give me an example of what you mean by synchronicities because i know what i think Um, it means but i I want to make sure that we're i'm answering your question in the way that makes sense hmm. i would say like a synchronicity would be um you mean where things just kind of all fall together and it it, it just kind of all fits yeah kind of like like when you you looked for when you were asking for money and you got the check yeah. Oh, see, yeah. that's a major synchronicity there. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was the high point of my week. Let me tell you. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, there are times when I do 
question. Like, okay, are you guys really out there? Like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. You know, are you guys really out there? Like, you know, how how do I know? And sometimes I'll encounter stuff, and it's usually it's usually in the forms of just small, subtle things. I think one of the things, one of the biggest mistakes we make as human beings is we look for patterns when there are not any. But the second biggest thing we do is we fail to notice patterns when they do exist. Um, so sometimes, you know, I'll see, I'll be working with a particular ancestor and I'm just kind of like, I feel like, I feel like the, the signal is not getting through, like ain't nothing happening here. And then something will happen where I'll be like, oh, that's, you know, I'll, I'll catch a whiff of a scent that brings back some sort of olfactory memory of that person. Or right. I'll see, you know, something that reminds me of them while I'm somewhere else. Like I'll be mm-hmm. walking through the grocery store and it's like, oh, there's an owl and she collected owls, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So it all kind of fits together. There was a, there was a situation a few years ago where I was working with, with trying to do some work with my great grandmother who, who passed when I was a child. And um, I just felt like I wasn't getting anywhere. Like, I'm like, I just feel like she's just like, she must be really busy right now because she's just not even listening right now. So (laughs) I didn't know what was going on. And, um, and it was a little frustrating. And then I was out somewhere. I can't remember where I was, but it was a public place. It was, it might've been the grocery store. And all of a sudden I caught a whiff of Chantilly perfume, which is what she wore. And I remember very distinctly, she that to me, Chantilly smells like old ladies because that is that is what she wore when I was growing up. And it's a very distinct scent. And all of a sudden, I caught a whiff of it. So I had to, like, go around the corner and see, like, okay, where's the little old lady? There's got to be one here because they're, they're the only people who wear this. I looked all over the place. And there was I was, like, completely alone in that section of the store. But that little that little trigger made me realize that, okay, she's still present. She's with me. She's hanging out. She's just not as invested in this thing I've been working on as maybe I am, or maybe I would like her to be. Um, so that was kind of a signal to me. It's like, hey, you know, slow your roll, Patty. Just back up a little bit. So I did. Interesting. Uh, one of the things that you just mentioned though, is looking for patterns. And mm-hmm. I know one of the other things that you are into is tarot cards. Yes, yes. I love me some tarot cards. <laughs> <laughs> and... and um, do you think that when you do a tarot spread, is it just random or do we think that is the human mind looking for patterns and making sense out of it and somehow extracting information from the ether and putting it together into something for the individual that you're reading for? Yeah. You know, people, again, this goes back to my science brain that really struggles to wrap itself around the science of tarot because, you know, it's, it's, it's pictures on pieces of paper, right? How yes. could that possibly tell you, tell us anything? Like from a logical perspective, tarot shouldn't work. It shouldn't mean anything at all, but it does. And, you know, I've been reading tarot as long as I've been practicing as a witch. So it's been a few minutes. And what I always, what I have come to decide as far as my personal experience is that, well, first of all, tarot isn't really, it's not really predicting the future. It's more of a guidance tool. It's more like, it's, <laughs> it's like a 78 card therapy system is what it is. Um, because I think what it is, is our brains interpret those images in the way that is most accurately reflective of what's going on in our own subconscious. I always tell people the tarot cards generally don't tell you things that you don't already know. 
but what they do is they confirm things that maybe you didn't know you knew or things that you didn't want to admit that you knew. Um, whenever I do tarot readings for someone, you know, at first there's that initial, oh my goodness, I can't believe the cards are telling you all of this stuff. But then by the time we get to the end, I'm like, okay, but really, are any of these things a surprise to you? And they're like, not really. No. So I, I think it's the way our brains interpret things and how, you know, obviously those patterns and the symbols mm -hmm. that we experience in tarot cards help us sort of put a direction on that interpretation. Um, and, you know, it, I, I can usually tell pretty much, pretty much right off the bat when I'm laying down a spread, you know, it's kind of like, okay, your question was about topic A, but what we really need to focus on here is topic B, because clearly that is a big thing for you. And they're like, well, yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, I guess we should focus on that. Um, so I, I think the human brain is a really interesting and sometimes weird place. And it is chock full of information that sometimes we want to avoid admitting to ourselves. And I think that's what tarot does. I think it's, mm -hmm. it sort of pulls that information out of our subconscious and forces us to reflect on it. It forces us to confront what can sometimes be uncomfortable truth. So how do you explain it when you do a reading and it comes out maybe not as you expect it? So you do it again mm -hmm. and the same cards come up again. You shuffle them, you do it again, and they all yeah, come up and again. And this happens to everybody. You know, I wish I had an explanation for that. And I mean, you know, I, I, I think the universe probably has some impact on that. But I think, you know, there's some stuff in this universe that we're never going to understand. Um, and that's, you know, that's happened to me before where I'll, you know, I'll lay down three cards and the person's like, yeah, those don't make sense. I'm like, okay, they don't make sense to me either. Let's try it. Shuffle, 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 play three down more. And it's like, oh, hey, look, they're back. That, that to me is the universe trying to tell us stuff. How did those three cards get to that part of the deck where I pulled the same ones out again? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of people could argue, well, maybe I didn't shuffle them properly or, you know, maybe it was like some sort of statistical improbability, but yet they still got there. I don't know. Um, all I know is the cards are never wrong. And that's one thing that I have learned over the years is that as weird as it might be, I've never been steered incorrectly and they are never wrong. Interesting. You know, a couple of days ago, I just got, I ordered this weird deck. It's called like, the, it's like the psychedelic deck and they're black and white. They're Ooh. all trippy looking. Okay. And um, so I shuffled them and I pulled a couple of cards and all the cards had snakes on them. And, I was okay. and I've been dealing with a situation where a couple of people were very nice to me. And one of my coworkers said, oh, they're just a bunch of snakes. Oh, they're never just a bunch of snakes. <laughs> they're <laughs> just a bunch of snakes. But then it came up in the cards, too. That's that's interesting. I mean, snakes, obviously, we think of deception, but something else about snakes that's really cool yeah, is they're, they're symbol of transformation. Kind of. Well, they're they're transformative. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're if you're shifting from one thing in your life into another, I mean, what does shake snake do every so often? It sheds its skin, and it's mm -hmm. like a brand new snake all all of all of a sudden. So snakes snakes are interesting, but there's never it's never just a snake. <laughs> never just a snake. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not like what, there's that there's that thing about sometimes the cigar is a cigar or is just a cigar. That does not apply in tarot. There's never anything that's just a whatever. <laughs> it's all there for a reason. 
Right. Do you have any favorite decks or that you work with? I do. I do. So I, I mean, I know a lot of people hate the Rider Waite Smith deck because it's been like, you know, we see it all the time, but I, ha- I have one of the centennial versions, which is in a more, um, it's in like the sepia tones and sort of the more muted tones. Like Pamela Coleman Smith would have originally created it instead of the like, bright yellow, bright red, bright blue, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and it's sort of earthy feeling. Um, I do, I do read on that one pretty regularly just because, I mean, it's, it's just comforting to me. Um, my other favorite deck right now is the Tarot of the Pirates. Hmm. <laughs> I like pirate stuff. I like pirates and the too. Earth, pirate stuff is cool. And this is an older deck. I've had it for probably 15 years. It's a lot of fun. It's got a really strong masculine energy to it. Um, the artwork is really neat. Some of it is just really cool, especially like, so I've been rewatching the show Black Sails on Stars, which is I love that one. It, I've a, seen oh, it. My- <laughs> my God, I love Black Sails. I'm on my third watch through. Like Charles Vane is my guy. I love me some Charles Vane. And so if you if you if you like piratey stuff and like you know sort of swashbuckly thing, but not like clean, sanitized Disney mm-hmm. pirates, this is a good deck to work with. It's 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 got a really strong masculine energy. Um, I really like it. Um, I recently picked up. I'm trying to think. I recently picked up uh, the Tarot of the Crows. Um, which I'm kind of excited about playing with, but I haven't really found the right moment to crack the deck open. Like I've looked at it and the artwork is lovely and I can't wait to see what kind of readings it gives me. Um, but I haven't had a chance to like really give it the, the time and the attention that it deserves. But mm-hmm. I, I have an obscene amount of tarot cards. I mean, like I have probably, I, I've easily got two dozen decks sitting up here on my shelf and I, I've, I've used all of them at least once. There are some I purchased just because the artwork was gorgeous. Yeah. Um, but I think my, my go-to deck right now between the pirates and it would be either the pirate one or the everyday witch tarot, which I really like when I'm reading for clients. Mm-hmm. Um, it's by Deborah Blake and Elizabeth Alba, I believe is the artist and the artwork is just really fun. It's just a really fun deck. It's a very, it's sort of lightweight. The artwork is really clever. It's really cute. There's cats hidden in a lot of the images. You know, it's kind of neat. Um, so that one and the pirate one are the ones I use the most right now. But that'll change in a few months, I'm sure. I'm going to have to check out this pirate deck. Whenever I do a reincarnation or a past life episode, I'm like, man, I think I was a pirate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pirate stuff, I'm fascinated by it. A lot of people don't know this about me, but in addition to writing witchy books, I also write fiction. My first published book was actually a children's book called The Pirate's Alphabet. And it came out in like 2007. It's out of print now. Um, but I wrote it because my kids and I were into really into piratey stuff. And my son, who would probably die if he knew I was telling this story, my son is 21. And I am convinced that he and I were aboard a ship together in a previous life because of things he said to me when he was like three and four years old. Um, so I'm pretty sure he and I have a swashbuckly history together. So he was really into pirates when he was a kid too. It was great. Yeah. If I had even two things that I could be now, one would be a pirate and the other would be Keith Richards. Keith Richards is going to outlive us all. (laughs) You know, when nuclear war comes, the only thing left standing will be Keith Richards and Betty White. That's it. (laughs) Nobody else. He's my hero. Nobody else. <laughs> Keith, Richards, Keith Richards is 
Well, and Keith Richards is kind of piratey too. I yeah, mean, yeah, that's where Johnny Depp got it Jack from. Jack Sparrow on, mm-hmm. right? Showed up as Jack's father. I mean, who else? Who else could be Jack Sparrow's father but Keith Richards? So no it all it all ties in together. <laughs> that's so great. It is. Um, what type of like? I've done a lot. Of, I've I've interviewed a lot of people on Terra. I've interviewed like um, Mary Kay Greer. I've interviewed. Oh I've yeah. Mary, interviews um sky alexandra um and a few others um what do you think of oracle decks you know i know oracle decks are hugely popular i i've they just never really resonated with me i've tried um and I just, I just don't feel a connection to them. Now, one thing I do, and this is something I actually mentioned in the book, is I actually created, an, I'm in the process of working on an ancestor oracle deck of my own, mm-hmm. um, where I'm using images of my people to represent certain concepts. You know, like this person represents wealth and abundance. This <clears throat> person represents secrets and mystery or what have you. Um, and that's an ongoing project because, you know, I'm never going to run out of ancestors. That's for sure. Um, so, for, but it, but it's a uniquely personal one. Like it, that, that deck would only work for me. It wouldn't mm-hmm. work for anybody else. Um, but a lot of the Oracle decks I see out there, I, I wish I connected with them because some of the artwork is just incredible. I mean, I've seen some that are just exquisitely beautiful and I've tried and I'm just kind of like, just, just. I, it just does not click. It just does not work for me. Yeah. I think, I mean, I do have one on a, a sacred geometry deck that I like. I've uh, seen that. It's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And, it, and it's interesting that I can find meaning in the shapes, in the position of different shapes and where mm-hmm. lines are intersecting. and is a different way of looking at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one thing that's really interesting, too, is like the different Oracle decks, whether it's Sacred Geometry or, you know, like I, I've seen one where it's like, you know, fantasy animals and stuff. It's really mm-hmm. gorgeous. Um, I think because everybody's brain connects with things so differently, there are some decks that work better for other people. I'm sure there are people out there listening right now who are like, I tried that tarot deck with the pirates and I just couldn't connect with it. It's stupid. I'm like, you know, because everybody's brain works differently and we all bring our own experiences to the table. So, you know, in your case, working with sacred geometry totally makes sense because that's how your, your brain is processing that in the way that's effective. You know, it's just like there are other types of divination that people use that, that I just, I, I just haven't clicked with. I know there, you know, there are a lot of people who are like, I tried tarot and I just, just wasn't feeling it, you know? So everybody's got their own thing as far as what types of divination they work with. Like I said, I wish, I wish Oracle cards worked better for me because some of them are just lovely. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, some work, some of them I've seen and they look a little cheesy to me, so. Oh, yeah. Well, there are some tarot decks where I've picked them up and I've looked at it and I'm like, you know, I thought I was going to like those, but eh, not so much. Do you use the cat tarot? There's, there are several. So I actually have a deck. The first deck I ever got was the tarot of the cat people, mm-hmm. which is not the I same as the cat. One. Yeah, there's the cat tarot, but I have the tarot of the cat people. Um, and I don't use it anymore, but I still have it because there's a little bit of a nostalgia thing for me there. Like it was my first deck. I've been toting it around with me for a, a lot of years. Um, but I don't have the cat one yet. I haven't, I haven't had a chance to play around with it. There's actually, there's a, there's a couple of dog tarot decks out there that I actually <laughs> really want to get. 
because I mean I've got a big dumb dog and he has to insert himself into everything. So I'm like I'm curious to see how those work too. Do you have a cat? I have. I do, I do not currently have a cat. I, I currently really? have a dog, but I've I thought I thought all things. witchcraft people had like tons of cats. Well, I've had cats in the past. I'm currently cat free, and I would like to bring another cat into the house, but. I have an 87 pound dog who doesn't realize he's an 87 pound dog and he is confused by cats. Um, and I'm really afraid that one of them would get hurt. And, and I just, I, I don't want to have to deal with that. So, you know, I, right now I'm currently catless. If I was to bring one into the house, it would have to be like a 30 pound cat who could sit up high and hiss at him because mm-hmm. otherwise we'd have some problems. <laughs> so I'll have cats again eventually. And my boyfriend has a cat. It's a black cat named Bink. So like how stereotypically witchy can we be? Right. Why is it that witches like cats? You know, I've read a lot of theories about this. And I think, so I'll share what what my personal opinion is here in a minute. But what I what I've read is that you know there are a lot of associations with you know cats because of you know during the the burning times or whatever people want to call it the witch trial phases. You know there was sort of an association that cats, particularly black ones, were witches familiars and they were the tools of the devil. And you know if you know. She, she lives alone in a cottage at the end of town and she's got a black cat. Therefore, she must be a witch, that kind of thing. So there was sort of this association uh, with with black animals and specifically cats uh, that, you know, they, they were they were all doing the work of the devil. My personal opinion, though, which is like cats, because cats do not give a shit. They don't care. They absolutely have nothing but attitude. They don't care about your opinion of them. They don't care what you want. They don't care that you think they're the boss. Cats are the ultimate independent animal. They're they're rebellious. They just cats gonna cat. They just don't care. Um, and I think that resonates with a lot of people because I think there are a lot of people in the, the witchcraft community mm-hmm. who are just like, you know, I'm 52 years old. I am way beyond the age of carrying what pe- what other people think of me. And I think a lot of people in the witchcraft community have reached that point. We're just kind of like, we're just gonna, witch is going to witch. We're just going to do what we're going to do. And if other don't pe- other people don't like it, they can lump it, you know. And I think cats are really the embodiment. Of sort of that fierce independence, that mm-hmm. that uh, that inability to just care anymore about the opinions of others, because you know cats don't; they really don't. It's interesting. You and I are about the same age, so what do you think about? I mean, the the, the Wicca witch pagan community has mm. changed a lot from when I was oh, younger yeah. to now. And yeah. a lot of it has become, I guess for lack of a better word, like a feminist movement. You know? I, it, it, it's almost yeah. sometimes like, like like me as a male, I would be mm-hmm. a little, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I would go there now. Yeah, no, no. I, I kind of get what you're saying. Um, I think witchcraft, the modern witchcraft movement has always been a feminist movement. I, I really do. Because... All of a sudden, after, you know, all of these couple of thousands of years of people having this patriarchal religion that dominated everything, where women weren't even allowed to be priests, and in many cases still are not, 
now all of a sudden we've got this this spiritual movement where not only are women on equal footing, but women can be high priestesses. We can honor a goddess instead of just a god. So, you know, it's, it's pretty empowering. And I think a lot of women do come to pagan belief systems because they're trying to escape the, that patriarchal situation that they were in before. So I think witchcraft has always been a feminist movement. Um, I think where we have to tread cautiously is I think it's really important to make sure that we welcome people of whatever gender identity they might be. I want men to feel comfortable in my circle at events, just as comfortable as the women do. I want people who maybe were assigned male at birth, but of you know are now identified differently or people who are assigned female at birth and now identify differently i i want every single person no matter what their gender or genitalia to be Mm -hmm. comfortable in my circle um so i think you know i think it's really important I, i i sometimes have encountered people uh they're whose whose writing is their feminism is based on plumbing um, you know, you encounter people who are like, well, this is this is woman power because it's all about the womb and the ovaries and estrogen and all this. And I'm like, I that's that's not really that's not my feminism and that's not my paganism. You know, I want my paganism to be welcoming to, ev- to everyone. And to me, feminism is the idea that no matter what gender you identify with, Everybody, everybody gets an equal seat at the table. Right. So, but I do think I think paganism and witchcraft has always been a feminist movement. Um, we're just a little bit louder now because, frankly, a lot of us are just tired. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're just we're, we're we're just tired, and I I think people are getting louder now. And it's not that we're more feminist than we were before. I mean, I was raised in a feminist family. Both of my parents are avid feminists. I was, you know, I was going to ERA marches when I was seven or eight years old. Um, you know, but I want to make sure that everybody is welcome, you know, and I don't ever want any of my male identified guests to feel like somehow they were shut out because we were celebrating a goddess. Just like I wouldn't want my female identified guests to feel shut out because we had a celebration honoring a particular male God. I I guess the reason I asked that question, because some of the founders, or at least the founding you know, like the gardener, like he, I mean, he mm-hmm. was a male and he got a lot of his stuff from Aleister Crowley. So, mm-hmm. so it came from there and then it just sort of, it, it morphed into what it is now. And it's just, it is different. It seems like to me though, still to this day though, witchcraft is more women and ceremonial magic is more men. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily the case, but I do think there has been an evolution um, I think if you look back at the early days where Gardner was doing his thing, but then you also had Dorian Valiente, you know, so as, as people move forward, I think things have evolved because, well, I mean, I think any spiritual movement evolves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know enough about serial, ceremonial, I almost said serial, ceremonial <laughs> magic. I don't know enough about CM practice to really have an opinion on it because I'm, I'm not really qualified to talk about it, but I can tell you that I probably know an equal number of 
female practitioners of CM as I do male practitioners. But what I can tell you is that the men are a whole lot more vocal about what they do. If you ask a, a, a male practitioner what he does, he will happily tell you all about ceremonial magic. <laughs> it's true. Women, <laughs> and it, it was because it's because men are conditioned to be absolutely comfortable talking about things that they do. You know, I mean, it's 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 a societal thing. Like, mm-hmm. oh, sure, tell me what you do, and and they do. Women tend to downplay what we do. Again, we're sort of conditioned that way. So a woman, a woman who practices ceremonial magic may not go into nearly as much de- detail as her male counterpart. She might just say, well, you know, I practice magic and we leave it at that. And then maybe we just assume that it's witchcraft as opposed to CM. So. Mm. Are there any differences between witchcraft, voodoo, hoodoo, Santeria, was it Bruja, and some of the other paths that are out there that are paganism? Yeah, well, you know, and some of the ones you named are very specific to very, very specific cultures. Yeah. So, you know, voodoo is a very specific practice with specific deities found within a specific culture. You have Haitian voodoo and you have New Orleans voodoo. Um, And as someone who's not a practitioner of either of those things, you know, I'm probably not the best qualified to talk about it. Um, Same with Brujeria, though. That's, you know, in Santeria. Those are found in, you know, Spanish-speaking communities. So I think there are a lot of commonalities between a lot of these things. Um, you know, in almost all of these different traditions, you'll find that, you know, there's 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 a common ground in that, you know, we may all use candles for magic. We might use them in slightly different ways, but we're all using them. Same with herbs and plants. You know, pretty much every magical tradition, we got something going on with herbs and plants. And a lot of times the correspondences for those herbs and plants is similar across cultures. Um, you know, same with working with deities. I'm, you know, I, I know for a fact that I work with different deities than my friend who practices, you know, Haitian voodoo. But I also know that, you know, we're the way we work in, with them can has some has some similarities. So, you know, are there differences? Absolutely. Just like with language or food or anything else that different cultures have. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are also some similarities and some crossovers that I think we see, uh, you know, depend no matter, no matter where a practice originates from, there's some, right. there's some common ground. It is interesting. Like folk magic is a, is a cool thing because it's in every culture, you know, like, oh, yeah. like my, Ger- yeah. like, like my German side of the family, there's, there's um, like hex craft. On the mm-hmm. Italian side of the family, there's things like the evil eye and stuff like that. So, and, it, and it's in every culture, you know, a lot of it's oh, been yeah. sort of put into the category of superstition, but but it's really folk magic. Yeah, and you know the the thing that about folk magic that's so interesting is that it tends to exist alongside other religions. Um, you know, a, a lot of the folk magic of the England, the British Isles, England, Scotland, um, as well as some of the European countries like Germany or what have you, a lot of those practices made their way here to the United States. And, you know, a lot of the Germans, they stopped around Pennsylvania and the Scotch-Irish Scotch and the English folks ended up working their way down into Appalachia. And um, where I live, is we're, we're, we're basically North Appalachia. And there's a lot of folk traditions that still exist here mm-hmm. that were brought over from the folk magic of the old country, but they exist side by side with Christianity. And when people do these certain traditions, like someone passes away and you go tell the bees, 
or you know you think somebody's problematic you think they might be a, a, a bad guy and you throw salt after them they do these things not because they're witchcraft in fact a lot of the folks around here would be horrified to think that what they were doing was <laughs> witchcraft so we don't we don't have truck with that around here but but they're a tradition that has been carried on throughout generations upon generations so that it's just something you do and has nothing to do with you know whether you're baptist or lutheran or a pagan or you know a hindu or whatever you know someone dies you, you tell the bees or someone is bad you throw salt at them that's mm-hmm. just what you do um and it it perpetuates and it's uh, it's it's ongoing hmm. yeah like where i live now i'm about not i'm about like two hours away from new orleans so we have, oh, okay. we're I mean, like a voodoo country now. So everything down yeah, here yeah, is yeah. about the mojo. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to visit New Orleans last year for the first time, or not last year. No, because last year we had a pandemic. So it was 2019. It was March of 2019. Um, I actually had to go down there for a business trip for my, my full-time job. A lot of people don't realize this. I'm not a, like, you know, like, I'm a full-time pagan, but I have a, a full-time job in the corporate world. Oh, no. Um yeah, so I I went down there for a business trip, and my my younger daughter, who was 19 at the time, was like, I want to go. And I was like, okay. So I bought an extra plane ticket. She went. And we spent like five days walking around the French Quarter. I have never eaten so much food in my life. We were eating five <laughs> times a day, which was fine. We were walking everywhere. I mean, we were walking like a six, mi- six miles on foot every day mm-hmm. just because there was so much to see. I mean, like, we got to the point where it was like, we were eating five or six meals a day, and then we got back home, and I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to eat again, and holy cow, oh my god, we ate all the things, it was so, the food, mm, chef tips, it was so good. <laughs> it was amazing, it was absolutely amazing. They do have good food here. Oh, so good. <laughs> one of the rumors... I'll go back just for that. <laughs> one of the rumors, that I interviewed a guy in New Orleans, he calls himself Dark Waters, and um, he said after Hurricane Katrina hit and he rebuilt the city, ever since then, um, all the voodoo practitioners would gather together every time a hurricane started to come towards that direction. And he would try to cast a, a protection around the city. I have heard that too, but I, I, I don't know anyone who's actually... I'm going to say I don't know anyone who's actually participated in it, but I don't know anyone who has said they have participated in it. I don't know anyone who has acknowledged participating in it. Um, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, that's I mean, that's pretty big magic, though. I mean, it, well, I understand it, it is true, and so far it has yeah. worked. Yeah, yeah, you guys have managed to be pretty well unscathed ever since that, haven't you? Well, they have. They, yeah. they send now. They send them my way. Oh, oh, that's no fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, that's one of the things that comes up with like big working, like <laughs> large group working, especially when it comes to weather magic. It's kind of like, okay, but that hurricane got to go somewhere. It's, it's, it's got to go someplace. Mm-hmm. So if it doesn't come to you, it's got to go to that other guy over there. So. so how does that qualify? If I'm protecting myself, but end up harming someone else in the process of my protection, does that count as a protection spell, or does that count as a curse? You know, that's 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 an interesting perspective. So, I look at it this way: there is the 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 best way to defend yourself is through self defense. 
Okay. So if I'm protecting myself and someone else gets hurt in the process, but, but the whole idea of me protecting was the focus and the person getting hurt is a side effect. Like, you know, it's kind of like if I'm, if I'm, if I'm self-defending my house and somebody breaks in because they want to rob me and my dog bites them because he's my self-defense system, he's my, my four-legged security, mm-hmm. you know, is, you know, whose fault is that really? You know, is it my fault because I had a dog that bit somebody who broke into my house? Or is it the fault of the person who decided they were going to be a dumbass and try to break in and take on an 87 pound dog who takes, you know, no, no grief from strangers. Um, so I think you kind of have to look at it that way. You know, ethics and, and guidelines as far as like what's acceptable and what's not has, has always been a topic of contention and discussion in the pagan community. Um, you know, and, and the big thing is if you, if you cast a spell that is for the greater good, you know, you know, it's, it's what, what, what is, what is this? There's, there's a thing on Star Trek. I can't remember what it's called. Is it the prime directive? Whatever yeah. it is where they're like, you know, can... protect, protecting the, the, the all, but sacrificing the one, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there are, I can tell you that one of the first group workings I did, and, and I won't go into detail because, you know, I don't have permission from the other people involved to do so. But I will I will say that one of the first group workings I was involved in years ago when I lived in South Carolina, um, it involved somebody who had been causing a, a, a lot of harm to a lot of people through criminal activity, okay? violent criminal activity. And a group of us got together to do a working to stop this person from doing what they were doing. Um, and a couple weeks later, that person was indeed stopped from doing the things they had been doing. Um, it was in a pretty severe car accident, um, wasn't killed, but was not going to be capable of harming anyone ever again. Greater good. Eh, I I'm comfortable with what I did. I'm comfortable with being involved in it. Um, but not everybody has the same set of guidelines. You know, I always tell people, you know, magic is magic can be messy. Okay. It can be dirty. It can be bloody. It can smell bad. It can be painful. Um, but at the end of the day, what you have to ask yourself is, are you comfortable? Are you okay with doing what you did? Can you live with the consequences of your own actions? Um, you know, I would never presume to tell anyone that uh, my ethical guidelines have to be the same as theirs. So, you know, it's again, you know, someone breaks into my house and their dog bites them. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay with that. I can live with that. Right. I can live with that. Do you ever do any curses on people? I have not cursed anyone in a really long time. Um, and I, I, I won't say that I haven't done so in the past. I can count on one hand the number of times that I have done so in 35 years. Um, in fact, I can count on three fingers the number of times I've done so in 35 years. And the reason I don't anymore, it's not because I'm opposed to it. It's because I surround myself with people that just don't need person. I have created a life for myself where all the people in my life are wonderful, loving, supportive, kick-ass, awesome people. If And I have shields up around myself mm-hmm. and around my home so that the people that are the, the crappy ones, the one that might need a, a, a hexen later, 
they don't even cross the threshold. They they don't even come into my life. I do not have anyone in my life like that. It's been a really long time since I felt a need to uh, to drop a hex on anyone. Do you think there ever really is a need to do that? Because the, the what about karma? I mean, karma usually gets people in the end anyway. But, you know, so that's an interesting question, too. So I think there are certain circumstances. Do I think some people deserve hexes? Yes. Absolutely. I, I, I 100% do. Okay. Um, you know, and that's, like I said, that can be a bone of contention for a lot of people. Um, you know, people who commit deliberate violent crimes, people who harm children. Yeah. I'm I'm comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as karma goes, you know, we have sort of this misconception that karma is just like this big cosmic checks and balances system. Like, like it's just sort of never ending. Um, and I, the way I look at it now, I am not a gardenerian, but I have a friend who is a gardenerian and who we, we had a conversation very similar to this one time, you know, drunk around a campfire talking, you know, ethics and, and, and stuff. And the way this person expressed it to me was if somebody has done something so horrible that I, as, as somebody who generally chooses to be peaceful, if someone has done something so horrible that I choose that the only way to resolve this problem is through magic and through hexing this person, if somebody is that bad, perhaps I am their retribution. And I thought that was really profound because I thought to myself, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you shouldn't hex someone. You shouldn't ever cast a curse because what if karma comes back and gets you? What if you are that person's karma? So if you're, if you're going to look at karma, you have to look at it in both directions. Um, you know, and I know a lot of people are not comfortable talking about cursing. A lot of people are not talk comfortable talking about hexing or anything that might be possibly misconstrued as negative magic. Um, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, everybody has a choice. And like I said, I can count on three fingers the number of times where I've had to, to lay any kind of magical smackdown on people. But, you know, I, I don't regret, I don't regret any one of those three because it was all justified as far as I was concerned. It was justified. Oh, magical smackdown. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Bring in the heat, baby. <laughs> <laughs> How about removing? You know, um, that's actually a, a big thing here is, you know, people going to voodoo vet practitioners and having to pan out a whole bunch of money to get the mojo removed. Mm, that's interesting. You know, I know there are a lot of people making a lot of money off of stuff like that. Um and I think there are times when, you know, if somebody feels like they are cursed or hexed, you know, a lot of times they are. Um, and I, I occasionally get messages from people either on Facebook or Instagram or wherever they found me. And they're like, I'm pretty sure I'm cursed. I need you to, you know, remove this from me. I will pay you whatever you want. And I'm like, you know, as as much as I'd love to take on another side hustle, uh, this is not something I'm going to take on. You know, I mean, people, people are willing to pay lots of money for that kind of thing. And all I can say is, you know, you best find someone you trust because otherwise they're going to be, you know, you're going to, you're going to be back at their, their shop in three or four weeks. Like I still think I'm cursed 
going to cost you another $800 or whatever. And you're just going to keep on paying and you're going to keep on paying because there's a lot of shady people out there. That doesn't mean everybody who is, is doing removing is shady, but you know, let the buyer beware. Mm-hmm. Can people remove these things themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, and that's, that's one of those things too, where I was like, I always try to encourage people to do the work and learn what they need to learn um, and do it themselves. Because I think, first of all, you know, it's going to save you, you know, a thousand bucks or whatever. Um, but it's also so much more powerful mm-hmm. when you're doing the work for yourself. The biggest problem with that, though, at the end of the day, people are lazy. People don't want to study. They don't want to learn. They want instant gratification. They want someone else to do it for them. And they're happily willing to pay for the privilege. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if you've been part of the pagan or witchcraft community for any length of time and, you know, you, you claim that you've been learning things and growing, you should have the basic foundation for how to remove something from yourself at the very least you should be able to at least have a trusted friend or two or five that you can call and help you before you go spending you know handing a stranger twelve hundred dollars or messaging patty on the internet saying i'll pay you anything i mean how crazy is that (laughs) no it's a good it's a good thing i'm just too busy to take on new projects because i i just don't have time for that but i mean like i've had people who repeatedly you know i will I will send you as much money as you want. And, you know, what if what if they were sending that message to someone who was unscrupulous? I mean, how horrible would that be? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of things, you know, you don't have to be a practitioner to do. Um, right. Cleanse, especially when it comes to cleansing. You know, you can burn sage. Oh, yeah. You can visualize white light. You can mm-hmm. sort of take like a sacred shower or whatever. Yeah. Even Sweeping. I mean, taking your mm-hmm. broom and sweeping or doing floor washes. That's something I love to do. My house has hardwood floors, so I'm all about floor washes with different protective and cleansing herbs in them and stuff. Anybody can do that. You don't have to be like a practitioner of 30 years to cleanse your home, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's just, I don't know why people feel like they need to go outside of themselves to, to fix certain things. Well, I think I think what happens a lot of times, like I said, is I think I think people are often entranced by the idea of witchcraft and the idea of being a practitioner. But when it comes to actually doing the work, like I said, people are lazy. People mm-hmm. don't want to do the thing. You know, I, I I've gotten messages from years for for years from people. Will you cast a spell for me? No, but I'll how to do it. You know, I'll tell you how to write one of your own. No, I just want you to do it for me. Well, of course you do, because you're freaking lazy. No, I'm not going to do it. Uh-huh. How about making up your own spells? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I know, you know, there, there, there's one school where, where people follow grimoires to the T, and then there's like this other school of people who are like, I'm just going to make it up because it's the intention and the focus of energy that really counts. Well, if you think about it, every spell was made up by somebody at some point, right? Yeah. So if I write, a, if I make up a spell and I publish it in a book, what makes mine is so much better than the one you could write for yourself? Mm-hmm. Nothing, except, you know, you paid fifteen ninety nine to read it. I mean, and, and, you know, I'm certainly not saying don't buy my books. There's spells in it. But 
that's that's the thing. It's like if you find one that someone has already written, and I, I I actually love writing spells. I mean, I really love doing it. I mean, I I have a lot of fun with it. I put a lot of thought into it, and I I beta test every single one that I publish. I love doing it, but I would hope that when people see something that I or that somebody else has already written, you use that as a template, as a foundation, and then you tweak it and customize it to make it your own. Some people are uncomfortable writing their own spells. I mean, you know, I sometimes like, I don't know what to say, or I feel silly when I say it, or, oh my God, does it have to rhyme? Plot twist, no, it does not. You know, all this other stuff. People feel weird about writing their own spells, especially if they're new to the practice. They're a beginner. They're like, oh my God, what if I do it wrong? So, you know, take one that somebody else built and 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 tweak it and build upon it and customize it and make it your own. But making your own is so much more personal mm-hmm. because that is all you. That is just you. That is not Patty sat down and had a general idea and shared it with you. This is what is my intent and what is my purpose? And that's what I'm going to put into this. And I'm going to sink all my energy into it. And I'm going to make it amazing. Do you think that's what the difference is between um what makes a person an actual witch versus a witchcraft practitioner is when they start creating their own magic and their own spells and they yeah, start you know, maturing it, into their own system yeah you know i sometimes get messages from people how do i know if i'm a witch well are you practicing witchcraft because if you are that's what makes you a witch i mean honestly it's an orthopraxis mm-hmm. orthopraxic thing if you are doing the thing that you are a witch if you are somebody who is not actually practicing, but you're reading about it, you're learning and you're studying, well, okay, you're, you're on your way there. Um, but I do think there are a lot of people who sort of fall in love with the idea of it. And I think, I hate to sound like a total old person here, but I think it's stuff like TikTok and Instagram has sort of commodified witchcraft. So now it's all about the aesthetic it's like, oh, here's my witchy aesthetic. Look at my crystals. Look at my plants. I'm outside in the sunshine. But they're not actually doing anything. They're taking a lot of pictures and they're mm-hmm. posting them or they're doing a TikTok where they go on for 59 seconds about, oh, here's a here's the rock I found. And it, it's close to my heart. And I love it. You know, I mean, you do you, boo. But that's not actually <laughs> practicing, you know? So I think in a way... I think the difference is not so much between terminology, like someone who's a witch versus a mm-hmm. witchcraft practitioner, but are you doing the work or are you just sitting around making Instagram posts about how, you know, you want to do the work, you know, are you talking about it and thinking about it or mm-hmm. are you doing it? Because that's, that's the difference. If you're not doing it, then, then maybe, maybe witchcraft isn't for you because it really is a, it is a do kind of practice. It's happening with everything, even like with meditation now. You oh, know, yeah. people people just take a selfie of themselves sitting Indian style on the beach and Right. It's like, <laughs> Oh, here I am. I'm in my element. Namaste. And it's like, Okay, um what what did you get out of that besides actually, <laughs> you know, like fifty seven likes from your followers? Somebody emailed me once and they were like oh, I see on Instagram that you're an influencer. And I'm like, I don't know what the hell that is, but I don't want to be one. I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, that just sounds awful, an influencer. Which, I mean, and, and I realize that there's apparently people who that is their job title. Yeah. They're influencers. 
Um, I'm like, that's just weird. I, it just makes me really uncomfortable. Hmm. Um, before we wrap it up, what mm-hmm. is one of your, um, what is probably like the coolest thing that you've experienced in the practice of witchcraft? Like, have you conjured and materialized any spirits or something like that? Ooh. You know, there's been so much. I mean, honestly, it's when I first started practicing, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, you know, I never really set out to do it. It just kind of has happened. Um, the coolest thing for me, and this is going to sound really mundane. It's going to sound a little cheesy. Um, for me, the coolest thing about being a practitioner is observing the change in myself. Okay. And I know that sounds hokey and kind of dorky, but it really has been fascinating to look back and watch my own evolution. Um, a lot of people don't know about, know this about me. I was painfully shy a long time ago, like, like cripplingly, like did not want to like, you know, in the breakfast club, you know how Ali Sheedy is always in the back of the library right. and she won't make eye contact. She's just back there with her sandwich and her pixie sticks. That was me. Okay. For a really long time practicing witchcraft and becoming involved in the pagan community and getting the opportunity to meet so many people and to work with my gods and goddesses and with my ancestors and to practice a spiritual system that was so uniquely personally empowering for me. The person I am at 52 is like, like 18 year old Patty would never have believed I was going to turn into the person that I did. 52 year old Patty looks back and thinks, Oh, you poor kid. If only you knew, if only you knew how awesome (laughs) it's going to be. So I realized that sounds a little, little, little cheesy. Um, there's there there are some more mystical things that have happened, but they're they're kind of personal. Um, I I will I will say that I have encountered a couple of very specific goddesses. We've had some really great conversations, and that kind of blew me out of the water. But but honestly, the the most amazing thing for me has been the change in myself over the 34 years I've been practicing. Because I, like like I said future past me and present me wouldn't recognize each other but present me feels a little sorry for past me so it's it's been a journey i know i said that was the last question but i lied that's okay hit me with another because you made me think of something else okay um is there a big difference between self-help and magic I would say magic is usually self-help. Not all self-help is magic. <laughs> I mean, if that makes sense. I mean, when I, when I do magic, it's, you know, I mean, I'll be the first one to admit, I want my own life to be better. I want to make things good for me. I mean, I'm all about what can I do to benefit myself? Now, I will do things to benefit other people because that's how I roll. But at the end of the day, I feel like I am entitled and deserve to have a really good life, not at the expense of others, but if I'm willing to work hard for it, I'm allowed to have a good life. So for me, when I do magic for personal growth and for self-development and for spiritual advancement, to me, that is my self-help. That is my, that is my process. It's, it's my therapy. It's, it's what helps me grow as a person. Now there's, 
you know, there's other types of self-help and walk into Barnes and Noble. You got aisles and aisles of books on how you can self-help yourself. Um, you know, and it's everything from, you know, ending toxic relationships to, uh, you know, decluttering your closet and throwing away things because Marie Kondo has some really great ideas or it's about, uh, you know, building your self-esteem or it's about daring greatly or whatever. There's all kinds of things we can do as self-help, but all of those things can also be accomplished through magical practice. And I think for me, what I have learned over the years is that while it's partly the magic that has helped me grow, it is more importantly, the things I've learned about myself while practicing that have helped me grow. Wow. <laughs> I got nothing else. Oh my God. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> that, was, that was a great answer. <laughs> good. Thank you. you. You caught me off guard with that one. I wasn't expecting that one. So that was a good one. It's okay. I wasn't expecting that one either. <laughs> I like how they just sort of unfold on their own. That's, yeah. that's what I love about conversations like this one. Yeah. I don't pre plan anything, I just wing it. Sometimes it works, awesome. sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> hey, you know, we go where the road takes us. It's all day. Yeah. Um, so before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you and where can they find your book, Badass Ancestors? Yeah, so Badass Ancestors is available on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or Books A Million. You can also find it in any brick and mortar store, as well as I always recommend, if possible, shop local, patronize your local witchy stores, ask them to order a copy for you from Llewellyn. I'm sure they would be happy to do it. Um, you can also track me down online. I am at www.pattywiggington.com, or you can find me on Facebook at About Paganism. All right. And I will post the links to your website in the notes to this episode so my listeners can check it out while they are listening. Awesome. That'd be great. <laughs> Thanks for being on today. This was fun. Thank you so much for having me. See, now you can cross witchcraft conversations off your bucket list. No, you've done it. You've had your first one. And uh, we I should know. probably do this again sometime. Yeah, We definitely. should absolutely do this again. This was fun. Because I had even interviewed a necromancer, believe it or not. Yeah. And I couldn't find a way. I can't believe. <laughs> <laughs> We're everywhere, man. Now, now you found me. You know where I'm at. Yeah, Anytime. Awesome. <laughs> well, thanks for being on. And hang on one second. I just have to play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. Oh yes, I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.